Hello, folks. I wanted to tell you at the top of the show that this Halloween episode of the Weird History Podcast includes mentions of violence, suicide, and sexual violence. So if you would rather not listen to that, feel free to turn it off right now. Thanks. Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is ad-free and independent because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter at weirdhistorypodcast.com. Last episode, we talked about the life, the times, and the theatrical stylings of Paris's Grand Guignol Theatre, which offered terror, fear, and gore to Parisian audiences from the 1890s until the 1960s. But it's not enough to just talk about the theatre. I also want to give you a sense of what you would have seen had you gone into that old chapel, bought a ticket, sat down, and enjoyed a night of horrors. So, today I want to give you a small sampling of that, with retellings of three different Grand Guignol plays. The first I want to talk about is titled simply, HIM! And yes, it does have an exclamation mark after HIM. HIM is an early Grand Guignol play, and it is more typical of the Grand Guignols, and it's kind of a bridge between the Grand Guignols' early days when it was a theater offering popular manners plays and crime plays, and later horror plays. All the action takes place in a brothel, which happened often in Grand Guignol productions, and it begins with a sex worker, Violette, and her madam discussing recent grisly murders throughout Paris. They are reading all about them in a newspaper, and the perpetrator has not only killed his victims, but also beheaded and dismembered them in all kinds of grisly ways with expert precision. Because of that, most experts think that he must be a butcher of some sort, and he has taken his skills normally applied to animals and moved on to humans. The newspaper also notes that the killer has made off with many of the victim's valuables. The police, however, do have a description of the man, and they are looking for him. The madam leaves, and soon enough, Violet is entertaining a new client, and he seems fairly off. The new client is skittish, doesn't give a name, and he tells Violet that he wants to lock the door to her room while he's in there. She explains, though, that they don't do that in her brothel. The door has to stay unlocked. And it's clear that this client doesn't really know how a brothel works. It has rules, conventions, manners, and she tries to guide him through the correct way to comport yourself when you are availing yourself of the services of an early 20th century Parisian sex worker. He's nervous, and Violet tries to put him at ease. She explains, for instance, that he should go down to the bar and buy some drinks from the madam for them to share. And instead of doing that, he hands her a very large wad of money, and she is surprised by the amount. Violet thinks this is a bit unusual, but calls for the madam to bring them some champagne. The madam 
brings him a bottle and some glasses. As they are drinking champagne, Violet also tells the client that usually people who visit her put their belongings in a drawer while they enjoy the brothel services, and he is free to do so. The skittish client, though, balks at this. He says he doesn't want to put anything in a drawer, not anything of his, and he suddenly starts showing what he has on his person. He has quite a bit of things on his person. Things like watches, jewelry, valuable things. For instance, a diamond ring. He brings it out and asks Violet to admire it, and tells her that she would look lovely with it on her fingers. She says, that's a woman's ring. She wonders what the man is doing with a piece of woman's jewelry that he is just casually offering to a sex worker. The client replies, it's mine. He then starts showing off other things that he has in his pockets, more valuables, more money, and also a large butcher's knife, which he calls his best friend. The client starts talking about how he'll slice up anyone who tries to take what's his. And he keeps drinking, waving his knife around, and he bellows to Violet about how tough he is, and about how eager and willing he is to commit violence on others. And eventually, because of his raving and his drinking and the champagne, he sits down on the bed and starts to pass out. Violet, at this point, is very scared of the man, and she has put the pieces together. She thinks he is the killer she read about in the newspapers earlier. She's afraid and tells the madam as much. But the madam says, stay with the client. Hold him in his drunken stupor. Keep him where he is. Keep him docile until the police show up. Violet does so. Suddenly, it is her job to hold and talk to and buy time with and pacify a sleepy, drunken, potentially violent butcher who is applying his skills that he uses on animals to humans. He talks in his drunken, kind of passed-out state about slitting throats and how much he delights in it. Violet keeps trying to buy time, keeps trying to calm him down, keeps trying to diffuse a potentially violent situation, and then, suddenly... Suddenly the police show up and arrest him, and that's it. That's the end of the play. And Him was an early Grand Guignol play, and it kind of shows. It's very much a crime suspense exploitation piece, more so than a horror drama. There's titillating a bit about how it's in a brothel, and there's a guy who doesn't really know how it works, and he has to be gently guided through it, which is really kind of funny. And then there's no onstage violence or blood effects, just the potential of them. Violet and Madame talk about grisly things they read about in the newspaper. There is a knife getting waved around, and there is the potential, but nothing actually happens. No one gets stabbed. The cops show up at the very end as a kind of deus ex machina, and they drag the potential killer away. But later Grand Guignol plays would not be so bloodless. Future characters would face death and dismemberment on stage, not merely the threat of it. Violet is one of our luckier Grand Guignol heroes. She figures out what's going on, takes appropriate steps to avoid violence, and it works. The characters of our next play, The Ultimate Torture, are not so lucky. 
Grand Guignol plays were usually short, and usually took place in a single location, often in real time. The Ultimate Torture, written by André Delord, the Prince of Terror himself, along with a collaborator, Eugène Morel, uses that limitation to create a sense of claustrophobia. The play is set in a French consulate during China's Boxer Rebellion. I won't get into the details of the Boxer Rebellion here. It's a whole thing. All you need to know is that this is a play where the French citizens are holed up inside a consulate that's been essentially under siege for days as a battle rages outside. They are technically neutral in this conflict. This is a conflict between the Chinese Imperial Army and the rebels, and also European powers who are ostensibly allied with the Chinese Imperial Army. But it's uncertain. The French citizens hold up in the consulate wonder if the Chinese Imperial Army and the rebels might team up to kick out the European powers. And suddenly the entire affair might turn into the wholesale expulsion of Europeans from China. So yes, one of the horrors in this play is colonialism falling apart. Oh no, terrors. How dare Chinese citizens rise up against European colonizers or overthrow their own repressive imperial government. Ooh, spooky anti-imperialism. Anyway, <laughs> the occupants of the consulate wonder if diplomatic conventions will continue to protect them during the rebellion. They have a French flag flying outside, which, which ostensibly means they're neutral, but could the rebels go so far as to storm the consulate? They fear exactly that is coming. What's more, some occupants of the consulate are slowly going insane. One member of the crew, Demelin, has a daughter with him, Denise. And she's been there for days and begins ranting and raving and breaking under distress. Some of the occupants do go outside to explore for a time. Only one returns. He reports that the city is in fact flames, the rebels killed his compatriots, and he only narrowly escaped. He also reveals that not quite all of him was able to escape the rebels' clutches. He extends his arms, and both of his hands have been severed. His arms are bloody stumps. See, he escaped mid-torture from the rebels, and got back to the consulate just in time as he was nearly bleeding out. Demelin, the man with the insane daughter, knows what's coming. The rebels will storm the consulate. Death, suffering, and torture will follow. He wants to spare Denise all of that. She's going mad already. But to truly spare her, he has to do the unthinkable. He has to kill her himself quickly before the rebels kill her slowly. So... In one last act of fatherly love, he takes his insane daughter in his arms and holds her as she's ranting and raving. He tells her that he's there, that he loves her, and that everything is going to be okay, levels his pistol against her, and shoots her in the head. Her blood and viscera is suddenly all over him, and he holds her corpse in his arms. Demelin is weeping and sobbing over what he has done, what he had to do, to save his daughter after a fashion.
But suddenly, there's a commotion outside. Someone is approaching the consulate. The end seems to be at hand. Is it the rebels at the door? Are they coming to burn, to torture, and to kill? No. It's the European allies. The rebellion is over. The consulate is safe. And Demelin lets out a cry of despair as he drops the body of the daughter he just killed. It's kind of a nasty O. Henry type situation right there. This last one, The Kiss of Blood, is a longer Grand Guignol play. Most Grand Guignol plays were one act. This is actually two acts. You will notice two different violent climaxes in this narrative, and you will also notice a scene change. Both of those would have been different acts for this longer play that the Grand Guignol presented. The Kiss of Blood is also unusual in that it starts with gore. Most Grand Guignol plays held back, but the Kiss of Blood decided to get the audience going by showing everyone something that was good and bloody and nasty at the very, very beginning. Now, does the initial bloody nasty thing have anything to do with the plot or what happens? No, but it probably looked really gnarly and got people in the mood. The play opens in a doctor's lab. Dr. Leduc is in the middle of a trepanation with a patient's skull open on the table. Leduc and his assistants are trying desperately to save the patient as they operate on the patient's exposed bloody brain. Unfortunately, the operation does not go well. The patient dies, all in a day's work. A new patient enters. It's a man named Jobert, who's complaining to the doctor about a problem that probably won't need trepanation. He says there's a great deal of pain in one of his fingers. The doctor examines him and says, he can't really find anything wrong. His finger looks fine. He says the man must be imagining the pain and that his problem is mental, not physical. Jobert, however, disagrees with the doctor. He says the pain is very, very real and that it's debilitating. He demands that the doctor sever his finger. He pulls a knife on the doctor and says that if Dr. Leduc doesn't cut his finger off at that moment, he'll do it himself, right there in the doctor's laboratory. Dr. Leduc says, fine, fine, he'll cut off Jobert's finger, but not without painkillers. The doctor and an assistant administer chloroform to Jobert, knock him out, and while he's unconscious, the doctor reveals his plan to his assistant. He thinks Leduc is mad, you see, and his plan is to bind his hand so Jobert will think the finger has been removed, but really it is still there underneath all of the binding and bandaging. The doctor will tell him the finger is gone, it's a stump beneath the bandages, but Leduc believes that, through the power of persuasion over several days, he can convince his patient to not chop his own digit off. When Jobert awakens, though, he sees his bandaged hand and demands to see his severed finger. Dr. Leduc says he's very sorry, but he doesn't have it. As a matter of safety, they immediately incinerate all severed limbs after they are amputated. So he unfortunately cannot give Jobert a grisly trophy from his amputation. Jobert, though, smells a rat. He does not believe the doctor. And he insists on seeing evidence that his finger is in fact gone. He chews through his bandages and binding 
And when he sees his own hand, whole and unmutilated, he screams. He grabs a scalpel and begins sawing his own finger off while laughing maniacally. Shortly after that, we have a break between Act 1 and Act 2. In Act 2, Dr. Leduc and his assistant have followed Jobert to his home, where a servant tells him that Monsieur Jobert has been in a bad place for the past few months. You see, his wife, Helen, she died recently. Grief has taken him. Jobert has been acting strange. He's not merely melancholy. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. He's paranoid. The doctor, of course, is unsurprised by all this. After all, Jobert did sever his own finger in his lab not too long ago. Jobert enters and says hello to Dr. Leduc, and he explains himself to the doctor and the assistant. He says that he's been having a problem. His wife has been haunting him out of revenge. And when her spirit has appeared, she's taken him by the hand and kissed it, kissed him on his finger, on the back of his hand. And it is that finger and now that hand that has been so painful. He believes that because her otherworldly spirit has touched him on his hand, the pain lingers. And suddenly, Helen appears. Jobert believes her to be a ghost, but you'll recall that Grand Guignol plays didn't really do a lot with ghost vampires or supernatural elements. This is not an exception. Helen is not a ghost, and she explains that she has indeed been haunting Jobert out of revenge in a way. That finger, you see, was the one he used to pull the trigger on the gun he attempted to kill her with. Jobert, suddenly in the presence of his servant, Dr. Leduc, is revealed to have attempted murder. He thought he killed his wife. Helen says Jobert shot her and then flung her into a river. Suddenly, Jobert, in the presence of his servant and Dr. Leduc and the doctor's assistant, is revealed to be an attempted murderer. Helen also said she kissed his hand when she haunted him, the hand that held the gun, and soon that would fill with pain as well. Why? Well, because of the way that Jobert tried to dispose of her body. She's not dead, but Helen actually is in a bad way. After he threw her into a river, some sailors found her and revived her, but gangrene had already taken her. It had begun growing on her body and on her face, and she got revenge on her murderous husband by posing as a vengeful ghost and, with her gangrenous lips, kissed the finger in the hand that he tried to kill her with. She knew that her disease would spread to him, and suddenly, Jobert can feel pain in his hand the same hand that he cut a finger off of. Suddenly, in the presence of his wife, who is alive but gangrenous, and the doctor and the servants, he grabs a nearby axe, and as the gangrene takes his hand, he starts hacking away at his own arm, and as he severs his own hand, he says, No more pain, no more pain, and the blood and the screams flow out of him. And curtain. And these are only three of the more than 1,200 plays that the Grand Guignol produced over its six-decade lifespan. And if you were to buy a ticket, you'd probably see a good half-dozen of them over the course of a single evening. There were 60 years of terror, gore, horror, 
and comedy as well. And it's always nice to experience fear in a controlled manner. There's so much to be afraid of, especially right now. In a strange way, watching artificial horrors, horrors you can walk away from when the show is over, is a comfort. It's a big reason why I enjoy the horror genre so much, because in some ways it amplifies our demons, but it also shrinks them. It shrinks our fears down to the size of a stage or a screen or a page, where they are much more vivid, but also less real and more bounded. Happy Halloween. Thank <laughs> you.